0: Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. This episode is in a series of interviews that I did on the floor of Sumologic's 2019 Illuminate conference. In this episode, we talk with Nancy Goering, a senior analyst at 451 Research. I have known Nancy for a few years, and I'm always impressed with her perspective on the culture of IT operations and the impact of the massive changes in the last few years. And that's what we talked about. So without any further ado, let's dig in welcome everybody to another episode of the masters of data podcast the podcast that brings a human to data and i'm excited to have nancy goering with me welcome nancy
1: thank you nice to be here
0: nancy and i've known each other for a few years now so i'm happy i finally convinced you to be on the podcast so yeah. it's good to have you here <laughs> Nancy is with 451 Research. She's a senior analyst over there. It's actually, we can start off that way. You know, how do you end up being an analyst? What leads you down that track?
1: Yeah, it's a weirdly common path that I took. So I was a journalist for about 20 years and... Covered a whole bunch of stuff. You know, I was freelance for a while, but it was most of the time in tech or tech business in some form, way, shape, or form. Spent a lot of that time covering enterprise software and and enterprise technology. So it's kind of a a good training ground to um, become an analyst, right? Because I'd already spent all these years kind of digging into these geeky enterprise tech kind of um, topics. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense you knew how to communicate you'd already spent a lot of time understanding the space exactly and how long have you been an analyst now
1: well it's like three and a half years okay something like that yeah
0: you still glad you made that decision
1: yeah I do I like it it's fun it's been a lot of fun meeting people like you it's cool Thank you. I
0: appreciate that. Well, you know, Nancy, you and I have talked about this multiple times. I always love the way you think about, and I don't know if this is the way you think about it, connecting kind of the human experience to technology, because I think it's really easy. I've been in this space for almost 20 years, and a lot of times we talk about the tech we're like, oh, it's the new thing. Like I saw the new, even Dilbert has a cartoon about Kubernetes now.
1: I know, I saw that. That's <laughs> hilarious. Oh my God, I was do- I feel like our universe was like over the moon. I know, that. I know. <laughs> like, it was, mainstream. I know, it was fantastic. <laughs> Just put it in a container.
0: But we have a tendency to think about the technology, but the reality is it's people doing the work that are organizing them and, themselves in certain ways and are struggling to adapt. And so you spent a lot of time thinking about that, right? Yeah. About organizational changes. Yeah, so, recently.
1: Right? I think it's becoming clear that that's, it's like the harder piece, right? You can yeah. have great technology. I mean, it is hard to get the great technology, but that's one piece. And there's a, an almost bigger piece around how you use it and sort of the weird political stuff that goes on in a lot of organizations. Um, yeah. and right now in our organization or in our universe, there's a lot of talk about which tools you use and what situation and how many right, tools you right. have. And so the interesting question now is how do you change as a business what you're doing in that regard? How do you, do you just have to tell people they have to stop using something and start using something different? And what's their reaction going to be? And then what's the impact going to be on what you're doing if you just tell someone they can't do something the way they want to do it?
0: Right, right. Well, because people just naturally resist change. Totally, yeah, for sure. Everybody does. Yeah, yeah. I remember when, yeah, I mean, this would have been about 2010 when I first started getting involved in the quote DevOps movement, right? Yeah. And I just remember everybody at that point in time was arguing about tools, but what always hit me about it, it always was about some sort of change underneath the surface. It feels yeah. like this is also born up in like a bigger societal change because there's kind of a movement from kind of top-down command and control structures yeah. to like mm-hmm. this more like grassroots thing. And the tools have part of that because if you want a command and control structure, you would want people to interact with tools in certain ways. Yeah. Whereas if you want them to be free and be you know somewhat independent, You might not want them to work that way.
1: Well, and I think what gets interesting is when an organization embraces that idea in order to subtly create change. So to try to convince people that the change is their idea rather than <laughs> dictating it, right? right and I yeah, mean, yeah, and yeah. sometimes it's not as, like that makes it sound sort of malicious, but <laughs> right, you can you can introduce someone to something and, and hopefully they're gonna like it and then embrace it on their own rather than yeah. saying, this is how you have to do it.
0: Yeah, what does that actually look like? So how do you convince somebody that something like that is their
1: own idea? I think by demonstrating that it's good for them. Yeah. So if, if you introduce them to something, it, say it's a tool, they start using it, it actually works great, it solves their problems, they're going to want to do it right yeah. and keep running with it and then maybe introduce their peers to it. And then again, it feels more like a grassroots kind of thing than a top down kind of thing.
0: Does that mean that you see people doing this in the inter- in enterprise companies, like in small groups they're like they start small and then like work away?
1: I do, but, but I mean, it's often a top down type of thing, but the people who are trying to elicit this change, try to make it feel like that grassroots thing. So they introduce something to one group and use that group's success as a poster child to make it spread into other groups. But it's actually behind the scenes being orchestrated by someone at a higher level.
0: I feel like there's a couple other DevOps IT operators reports I've seen where they talk about that because there's a fine balance because if you don't have top-down management pushing and supporting it, then it's not going to happen because you're not going to have a safe space to operate. But if they got their fingers too much in it, then it feels like it's a mandate.
1: And then there's some resistance. Yeah, 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 totally. I know it's interesting. And I think the other thing that gets interesting here is language and how people define things because there's a certain kind of centralization that I've been talking about. Right now, centralization is sort of a dirty word in DevOps, right? Because (laughs) the part of DevOps is that you've got these autonomous groups that can do what they want. They choose the yeah. tools they want. They, they operate the way they want. It's decentralized, right? Right. But th- that can create some problems. And so I'm seeing some organizations centralize some functions and it's not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, it can actually be a real benefit to these people in the DevOps groups. So, but maybe you don't want to call it centralization because that's a dirty word. And I'm also hearing people kind of look down their noses at the idea of a center of excellence, even though I've seen some people saying, don't do a center of excellence, do this. But their description of this actually, to me, sounds exactly like a center of excellence. So <laughs> that's interesting how language becomes really important here as well. Oh, no,
0: no, absolutely. <laughs> when you say that, it does make a lot of sense because having been in this area for so long, like I remember... The whole idea of a CIO, the chief information officer, was kind of new when I started out. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And it was like, because basically a lot of them were brought on to get the servers out of closets. Yeah. Because like every department had a couple servers in the closets. Like, that's our website in the closet. (laughs) Right. And so centralization was necessary to kind of bring costs down and bring standardization. But then that became its own problem. And so now you have that pull back from that. Exactly. DevOps was like a a pushback. But it's only
1: like pieces, maybe, that makes sense to be centralized. So how do you get that balance, right, between? the benefits of decentralization and then the benefits of some centralization. Yeah. I think that's the difficult balance. Well,
0: I'd be interested to see what you think about this cuz even people there on the kind of the periphery of this they'll hear the terms, right? Like people might have heard of DevOps, they might have heard of like something like site reliability engineering. Yeah, yeah, It's like, you know, even people who should know what that means half the time don't. But what was interesting to me about that is I went back and read the book out of Google on it and was looking back at the thought part and it was basically like, look, we knew we needed to make our sites highly available. We wanted to have high reliability for customer satisfaction and we had engineers. We told the engineers to do it and then they... Basically became site reliability engineers. Yeah, but it's to that point is it actually was centralized. Like they ended Uh, up creating a centralized function, even in something as like you know uber cool and modern as Google. Right. They ended up still creating a centralized function, but it wasn't the same. It was like distinctly. Does that make sense to you?
1: Totally, yeah. And I mean, I think that's kind of what we're seeing happen in a lot of enterprises these days is they're transitioning what used to be a centralized IT ops team into something that they're calling an observability team yeah. or something like that, but that is populated by SREs. So it's, it's like they're shifting the IT ops team into the model that Google has. It's still centralized. It's not the same thing, right? They're not right. doing the same things, but it is still centralizing some things. But it's interesting as you talk about like SREs because the thing that I find hilarious about SREs is there is a book, as you reference, and not to say that everyone has to do exactly how Google did, but it's a book with a lot of detail. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And yet when I talk to people who have SREs or are SREs, they're all dramatically different in terms of what their jobs are, what their team structure is. So people are still interpreting it totally differently, right? And, And again, maybe some of that is just due to culture of their particular organization, right? They're picking the things that make sense and doing those, but they don't necessarily have to do everything that Google laid out in the book.
0: You have to be able to do that. I feel like every single one of these trends, agile programming was the same way because it was like, it could be very, very strict and then you could lose sight of actually what it was meant to do was actually chip code and actually like be able to build products. And and I think it's the same thing with like DevOps or site reliability. Just putting a name on it is not enough. But on the other hand, if you get wrapped up in the aura of it all, you lose track of the whole point was to actually be able to keep your site highly available without people being stressed and like losing their hair.
1: But the funny thing is once things become hot, like, SREs, like the term SREs. I've actually talked to companies that say that they they're just throwing in the term SRE in job descriptions. It has nothing to do with the, the job itself. Basically it could just be an ops job, you know, like an old school ops job, but you throw in SRE in hopes of I don't know, getting more eyeballs or getting more interesting it's like, people now I look or cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly pretty much. <laughs> it's kinda of funny.
0: I was thinking about that the other day. It's just one of the problems with LinkedIn in general because you know oh, it's God, just like yeah. uh, people putting stuff in there, like that's not your job title. I can't tell what you do from that description.
1: Yeah, there are some creative titles these days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think one of my old friends is here that he called himself the, I haven't actually seen this twice now, he called himself the Chief Unicorn Hunter. Oh, God. And, uh, and something protector of the galaxy besides, um, he'll if he listens this, he'll know who he is. And I was like, uh, I, I don't know what you do, but I like that.
1: Yeah, it's I like funny. that.
0: It doesn't matter what you do. I like that It's a little title. more creative. I mean, in context of what you do, Nancy, you talk to a lot of different you, know, you talk companies across the spectrum, right? Like yeah. you're not just talking to like cool fifty person startups, or right? You're just talking to like ginormous hundred thousand uh, person companies. So, do you feel like some of the things we're talking about, this whole movement from centralized to decentralized, you know, adopting of of DevOps or whatever these like newish practices, are they actually becoming more prevalent in the really large companies, or is it still kind of early days?
1: No, I think they are, but I think that they're. Going to be different or executed differently than yeah. a born in the cloud company, right? right? And and that's actually a kind of interesting bifurcation that we might be interesting to. S- watch how that evolves over time, right? Because you've got some vendors that pop up that are very focused on the cloud native and that's fine, right? That's a that's a fine market segment, but their needs are often so different than an enterprise, you know? And yeah. sometimes you see those vendors being super critical of stuff that enterprises are going to do and there's not necessarily, you know, if you're an enterprise, you have different needs, you have different requirements. Yeah. And so that's okay. So there might be different models and different tool sets ultimately because I think for a very, very long time in enterprise, is going to look really different than a cloud-native startup, right? I mean, an enterprise is going to have legacy. They're going to be in a hybrid universe for a very long time, so their needs are going to be really different. It's it's going to be interesting to watch how that evolves.
0: Early on in my career, I spent a lot of time contracting for basically to help the Department of Defense, like different parts. Oh, God. um, Uh I I worked for years on this thing that was called Army Knowledge Online, Uh which was uh, basically the intranet for the Army.
1: Oh, okay, cool. But,
0: But I remember it would come up on a routine basis. They'd be like, oh, well this is software we're creating for people though i don't know go check their health records or something like that but we're not putting it in a plane we're not putting it in a oh, tank right. yeah so there was like always this like distinction is like you know the The kind of work you'd have to do with a soldier in the field was like so very different than like what we were doing. But I mean, but even seems like a lot of these things, it's like, yeah, it's one thing. If you're running Facebook, nobody's going to die if your Facebook post doesn't post. Right. Uh, Whereas some of these enterprises where they're manufacturing or it doesn't even have to be life or death. It's a different model. And to try to blindly interpose that
1: totally you don't want
0: to do it but on the other hand like i don't know if you uh, like i read a really good book recently about um i don't know if you've heard of skunk works like Lockheed uh-huh. martin skunk works uh-huh. and where they like invented the u2 spy plane and stuff like that but the funny thing is is even in that case they actually worked like devops agile programming in the 60s and 70s oh cool where they put uh-huh. like engineers and programmers together in the same floor and everybody and like they were using they weren't building custom parts they were using stuff off the shelf and mm-hmm. like experimenting so Like, there's a part of it where there seems like there's a very, like, there's a piece of this that's just right because it's right, because this is a good way for people to work together. Yeah. And then there's a piece that has to be adapted. I mean, does that make sense, what you're saying?
1: Yeah, for sure. And so I think one of the particular challenges in an enterprise is that they have a legacy way of working and they have legacy teams. So you have an IT ops team, you maybe have created some DevOps teams for a particular reason because they're working on, new apps or services that are built using cloud-native technologies, it makes sense. But the fact that there are those two different worlds, the legacy world and the enterprise and the new world, is the reason that a lot of these enterprises start having problems. So one of the big things that I see is that ops functions fall through the cracks. It's unclear what the old IT ops team is supposed to be doing versus the ops functions that the new DevOps team is supposed to be doing. Mm. And so that's a challenge that you're not going to have. And a born-in-the-cloud business, that was DevOps from the beginning. It's going to be relatively clear who's doing what, right? So I think that's one of the big challenges that enterprises are having right now that are adopting DevOps is who does what. And there are, it's often because DevOps adoption is very often not prescriptive. It just yeah. happens. And there's no overarching plan like, now we're going to do the DevOps, and so let's Think about how we transition all of these functions. That doesn't happen. And so then it creates all these holes. Then you start having problems, right? Often application performance problems. And then you have to step back and say,
0: means you have angry customers.
1: What's going on? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And how do we fix this? And and a dialing back of things. And yeah.
0: When you're saying who does what, talk to me a little bit more about that. Like, are you talking more about in terms of like job responsibilities because yeah. it's like DevOps is more cross-functional than like what used to be in the past, is, it, is that no, what No, it's mean? because
1: you've got an, an IT ops team, what's their job description, what are they ah, doing? Okay. So they're very often maybe responsible for some sort of legacy workloads. They might be responsible for you know, a customer database that runs in Oracle, that runs in an on-prem environment, but the DevOps teams are working on microservices that combined create an, a customer-facing application but it has to draw on that database. Yeah. The other thing that happens a lot, especially in a microservices world, is no one has been designated to look at the overall customer experience of a microservices-based application. So all these DevOps groups are responsible for like a couple of microservices. Those all might be operating pretty well, but the customer experience could be really poor and no one really notices.
0: Because they're not paying attention. Because there's
1: no one there. I'm beginning to see people say, okay, well, now we're going to transition this IT ops team to sort of like an observability team. People there are going to keep an overall look on performance. Sometimes it's in a product team. So whatever product team owns this application or customer-facing service, there's a sort of a technical person there who's responsible for making sure that the application is performing well from the user experience. And then they yeah. interface with these individual DevOps groups. So so that's like kind of the thing that happens, right? Like where does the buck stop? So I talked to this enterprise and this is like the worst example that you could ever <laughs> hear, but there's the central IT ops team and they were told that the buck stops with them. So if, it, if the user experience is poor, you know, it's your butt on the line, but they didn't have the authority to tell the DevOps groups to do anything. And so what they ended up doing was designating a tool that they looked at as like the place to centralize all operations data, but they couldn't tell the DevOps teams not to use their tool of choice. So what they said was, you can use whatever tool you want, but if you use something that's not the tool that we've chosen, you also have to run ours. So there were some DevOps teams that were running two sets of monitoring tools on their applications. It's like the worst idea ever. I mean, I think there's a million problems you can think of. There, like maybe you should have centralized a tool that could accept data from all these different monitoring. Like there's, but like that was their solution. That's a horrible solution. It was a bad problem. But it's that's the kind of thing that's starting to happen as people recognize where these holes are.
0: And the thing is, it does seem like it's kind of like history repeating itself, because what I was saying before is I feel like in the early 2000s, when the Internet was really starting to get big and, you know, when you saw these companies coming out of that, there was a lot of confusion where you'd have you go to a company and there were like lots of different groups all touching, doing their own thing and nothing was compatible so there was like this big push for okay, let's centralize, let's get under the same standards. You saw big tool sets coming out of that. I mean, I was with some of those companies that were trying to sell those those kind of tools. And then that became too restrictive and there wasn't enough innovation. So now there's like there's rebels again and then it's becoming distributed again, which was great for innovation, but it's not necessarily great for, you know, stability. And so it, it seems like it's just it's like
1: maybe you should write a book that's what's to say, you should write this book about the centralization, decentralization cycle over time <laughs> in tech. <laughs> Anyone read it? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what kind of books sell, right? I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah, I need to come up with a good title. Yeah, like. there you go. Then it yeah, would I, I mean, I I interviewed Charles Wheelan, the guy who wrote Naked Economics. I need to come up with something like that. There you go. You yeah, yeah know, totally.
1: Like,
0: Naked <laughs> s- decentralization? No, that no, that does not work. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, one other thing I want to to ask on that note. You talked a little bit about where the buck stops. One thing that I find really interesting, and I, I see a lot of different trends and they're hard for me to like, pull out. So I'd be interested to see what you're seeing. Because like I said, you know, back in the early 2000s, there was this move to centralize under a chief information security officer. And it was always like, well, the chief information security officer gets a seat at the table and now they're part of the business and you know, IT is helping the business, blah, blah, blah. And now I almost feel like there's been a pushback against those people because they were basically, no one liked the CIO organization because they were the ones who give you the crappy laptops and you can never get anything fixed. Who's leading the innovation now? Is it more coming through rejuvenating those roles? Or is it coming through like chief technology officers or new centers of excellence driven by like lofty architect types? I mean, who's driving the innovation now? I think it's
1: way more bottoms up. So I think it's the the practitioners on the ground who are involved in Their local communities, right? They go to the DevOps days or whatever, you know, and they're very tuned into the latest technology developments. I think they're the ones who are pushing those up. It's not always easy, but that's where that stuff comes in the organization, right? And then it slowly percolates up. Yeah. That's what I think.
0: You think it'll stay that way?
1: I do, because I think those are the people best positioned to have their ear to the ground in terms of what's happening. I think it depends on the organization too, how hard that percolation is but I mean I think that's why traditionally change is slow in a larger more traditional business because the people who are making the big decisions they aren't even aware I mean I'm sure there's a bazillion despite the fact that Dilbert is talking about Kubernetes there's probably (laughs) a lot of CIOs well I don't know I, I bet most CIOs know what Kubernetes is. But, you know, there's a lot of people yeah. high up in technology organizations. who, that are aware. Or maybe they don't really know what Lambda is. Like, don't really get it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this stuff is all very new. And since they're not doing it all day and talking to their peers and other companies that are solving similar problems, I don't think that the folks at the top are the ones driving that kind of change. They're not aware of that stuff. It doesn't mean they won't take credit for it when That's it works. True. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also why things happen in pockets. One of my colleagues at 451 did a DevOps survey recently, and he asked a bunch of questions about how much of your organization has adopted DevOps, but also where did it come from? Like, is it authorized? Was it sort of dictated from above? You know, to try to get at that question of, you know, how do these things come in and into an enterprise, things like DevOps, and then how do they spread? Most of it is more bottoms up.
0: Yeah. And it does seem like that's kind of the change in, in leadership because instead of being like, okay, we're going to have a, a meeting and we're going to sit in a room with yeah. a bunch of you know, white middle-aged dudes with yeah. guys and we're going to make decisions and we'll let everyone know what we decided. It does feel more grassroots. But on the other hand, like, as a leader in an organization, you have to be able to recognize when something's working right, and then promote that too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would know,
0: say, okay, that's working. So how do I? One thing I did see, I was up at a company in Seattle. They basically had a DevOps evangelist that she had done like amazing things in DevOps. She was like a real driver of change. And what they did is they pulled her out. And then she became, like, the evangelist of the entire company, which I thought was really interesting. So she became the change agent. And she wasn't a VP. She wasn't a – she was mid-level. She wasn't definitely not a C-level person. But they – she actually would go to these different groups and kind of promulgate the – gospel yeah. of DevOps, but it, it seemed like it was working for them.
1: That's really cool. And it, I feel like that harkens back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. That's how that, that can sometimes work, is you like plant a seed or a spy in an organization and they spread these ideas. But another thing that, that I've seen work is sometimes organizations will create a group that's made up of like an individual from each. So say say you wanted to ensure your DevOps groups are doing the best that they can in terms of monitoring, right? So instrumenting their applications like they should, collecting the right kind of data, analyzing it the way that they should, and that you've got a 100 DevOps groups, you might choose one or two people from each of those groups to be sort of their resident expert. And those one or two people make up a monitoring group. Yeah. So then they get together however often or maybe they just have a Slack group and they talk about, they share best practices with each other and then that promulgates within their individual group. So that's like another, and for those people that's probably pretty cool right like they're they're sort of the evangelist within their group they're the resident expert you know they're sharing their good ideas with other groups and then seeing them be implemented in these other groups so that's kind of a, that can be a cool model that's exactly well. what I
0: was going to ask because I mean we've been being early on in my career that was a nice part when you felt like you're being recognized
1: totally well the other thing it does is allows people to learn become an, an expert on the job you know we do a lot of surveys around skill shortages and every, like nobody has the skills that they want, right? And it's so fast changing, like sort of like you were talking about before. I mean, you used to have this specialty in some area. Now people are being asked to do a wide variety of things. But how do you get that expertise, right? How do you transition from your spot that you've been in into doing something new. And that's really hard. You know, you can't necessarily just go to like certification classes and you know, like that gets that's you not, part of the way,
0: but it really doesn't get you. It the whole really doesn't. It. Do it, it depends.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that this is one way to get people to learn that on the job. They're learning from their peers. They're learning together. You know, maybe you're allowed to go to conferences and learn some more stuff. You know, it's a good way to keep the people, the talent that you want, but make sure that they're able to do what you really need them to do.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, kind of tie a bow on this whole thing, Nancy. So as an analyst, you're always, I mean, you're paid to think. That's what it is.
1: It's it's nice. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. Um,
0: So what are you thinking about now that is interesting to you that you don't think other people are paying attention to?
1: Far future of monitoring. And I think, so I did this report where I was looking at kind of how people are evolving their IT ops organizations. And I included a future state To be honest, my first draft of it, my future expectations were pretty lame and predictable. But I had a a colleague do a proofread and he was like, this is lame and predictable. It <laughs> so kind of pushed me <laughs> to think a little bit harder, and I don't, I don't necessarily sad. think I really hit it on Hard the luck. head. But when, yeah, <laughs> totally. But when you start to really think about like some future Star Trek state, yeah. I think it's kind of interesting, right? And yeah. so what I started thinking about was how you know, I mean, people have been talking about automation forever, mm-hmm. right? And it's widely acknowledged that it's kind of a pipe dream. But what if it weren't, right? Yeah. So what if people didn't even really look at their monitoring tools? Monitoring tools were just used to collect information and make recommendations to an automation tool that automates something. And then the people, really, their expertise is around automation and writing automations and looking back at what kind of automations happened in order to inform how to tweak your application. So I don't know. I think there's some maybe some interesting things long into the future that is cool when you start thinking about it. I absolutely think that makes
0: total sense because it's basically it's kind of like the uh iron man suit versus the hal 9000 like i would think in terms of like comic books and movies but <laughs> i think a lot of times what people think ai is going to become is like the hal 9000 it's like running everything and informs you what it did but it, what makes a lot more sense is where it's basically like you know it's it's iron man you're you're involved in the process but then it's essentially augmenting and automating what you would do. So like you're you're still making decisions as a human, you have to, that's what humans are good at, and processing information, but what you're doing is you're building in the ability to then make the responses faster, to augment it, make them more effective. And,
1: and using technology to crunch huge volumes of data that our brains can't possibly crunch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: defeat Thanos, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally.
0: <laughs> well, Nancy, I'm really glad we were able to take the time to do this. Yeah, and thanks. Uh, it's always fun to talk to you. I appreciate you, you coming on. too. Thank on. you. Yeah, you bet. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. As always, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find podcasts and rate us and review us so other people can find us. See you on the next episode.
1: Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to SumoLogic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to MastersofData.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.